And I tell you, I, I really miss corporate worship when we don't have it. Um, it is not the same to not be here. So very glad we can be together, very glad um, that we can come and sing and partake of the table and dive into the Word. Um, Jonathan, Emily, very glad to have you guys here today. Welcome. rest of you, not so much, but no, I'm just kidding. <clears throat> No. So, <laughs> linchpin. Have you ever heard that word? Know what that word means, okay? Um, in vehicles with axles and wheels, a linchpin is the pin that holds the wheel onto the axle. So that's pretty important, right? If your wheel's not on your axle, the wheels on the bus don't go round and round. They go, and you grind to a halt. So we know as far as vehicles, that's what a linchpin is. But if someone says that another person or a, or a certain thing is the linchpin in their plans, what they're inferring there is that that person or that thing is vital. It's irreplaceable in helping them achieve their goals. Now, I don't know how many of you are going to rejoice with me here. Uh, well, not rejoice with me. How many of you are going to like this and how many of you are not going to like it? Because I, I don't care. Um, about what I'm about to say, but last week there was a football game, right? Uh, Super Bowl. And uh, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers won the Super Bowl. And Steve's going, that's right, that's right, that's, that's my boys. Not my boys, but it's, it's, it's his boys. But they had a quarterback. Y'all might have heard of him, this guy named Tom Brady, right? Tom Brady had won six Super Bowls with the New England Patriots. Tom Brady leaves the New England Patriots and wins the Super Bowl with the Buccaneers and the New England Patriots don't even make the playoffs. Could we say that maybe Tom Brady was the linchpin of the Patriots and he wasn't there and their whole plans fell apart. He shows up somewhere else and they win the Super Bowl. And I'm just saying again, I don't don't care about Tom Brady or the Tampa Bay Buccaneers or really football much anymore because... When you don't win in 20 plus years, it's not very much fun. That's sour grapes. But anyway, I just bring that up because you see that illustration so vividly there. That one man. And it is a team sport for sure. But Tom Brady was the linchpin. And I would say is the linchpin. He was for the Patriots and he is for the Buccaneers. He's that important. Well, today, you're like, what's this got to do with anything? We're, we come across a linchpin of sorts in understanding all of Matthew 24, okay? And you guys, I've had three weeks to prepare. So, you know, it's kind of like um, you guys that play Super Smash Brothers, it's like my, my final smash is fully charged, okay? I mean, it's built up, okay? I'm coming. I'm coming strong. I'm going to take this off. Anybody care? Because it's killing me. I'll try to put, keep my head down. I think I'm far enough away. Oh, sorry. The rest of y'all got to keep them on. Hey, take your look. Um... But um, this, this passage that we're looking at today, I really do believe, holds the, the key to understanding the whole chapter, and it'll boil down to one word, really, and I think it makes that much of a difference in our understanding of Matthew 24. Now, let me say this up front, too. If you have read our church documents, our statement of faith, and what we say about eschatology, it's very, very broad and it's very broad on purpose okay so let me say this up front you may not agree with what I have to say today and that's okay 
Okay? I would ask you to think about it, to consider it. We're not going to unhitch with you. We're not going to defrock me, which would be hard to defrock me because I don't wear a frock anyway. I could say something, but I won't say it. Uh, Anyway, um, so if you don't agree with what I say today as far as this interpretation of this passage, hey, we can still be buddies. We can still be covenant church members together. And we wrote the documents that way on purpose, okay? These are not things that we're going to disassociate over. There are people who will disassociate over these things. And there are people who are maybe not here, but there are people who would listen to what I say today and they would write me off. I mean, I'm just going to tell you that right up front. We're not going to do that. Okay? We're not going to go that far. You don't have to agree with me for us to be doing life together, sharing life together, in covenant together. Um, and you're saying, what in the world are you going to say? Well, we'll take the blood sample when you leave. Let's just say it that way. Um, this stuff is not in our church documents, and that's on purpose. You don't have to agree with us on everything eschatological for us to be in, okay? I think that's important to know. So we're going to look today at, uh, I about said Romans. That's a flat blast from the past. Matthew 24, verses 29 to 35. If you would please stand as we read this. <clears throat> because we do believe, spoken by Jesus, written by the inspired apostle Matthew, under the direct tutelage and guidance of the Holy Spirit of God, that these are the very words of God. That's why we stand, because we respect this word and the God of the word. So, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, and I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit. We thank you for your people. We thank you, God, that your word is set in heaven, and it will not be changed. And while we stumble and bumble and fumble around trying to figure it out sometimes, God, you're gracious. You love us, and you want to prepare us for that day when we will be conformed to the image of Christ finally and fully, and we stand before you face to face. Help us now in this time to receive that instruction, that correction, and that edification by the power of your Spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, this is going to be a little bit different um, as far as structure. Usually, we kind of go verse by verse. We're going to do a little bit of phrase by phrase, pulling out some words of these verses. And the first thing that I want to look at is, is the first section here, which is verses 29 to 31. So let me read that again. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. 
And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So, yeah, this gets pretty heavy pretty quickly here. And uh, we've been building. We haven't been here the last two weeks, but the weeks leading up to this, we've been um, starting into Matthew 24. And our first word today is very important. It's not the linchpin that we're looking at, but it's very important. Immediately. Okay, let me go back to verse 29 here. Immediately is the first word that we see here today. Now remember, the disciples had asked a question at the beginning of this chapter. So let me go to that. Matthew 24, verses 1 through 3. I thought I had it in here. Maybe I don't. No, I don't. I'll just read it for you. Trust me, it's in there. Here's what it says. Matthew 24, verses 1 through 3. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he said on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Okay, so that's where we started back at the beginning of Matthew 24. And the disciples want to know when the temple will be destroyed because Jesus had pointed out and said specifically, not one stone will be left upon another in these big, giant, beautiful buildings you're pointing out to me. Okay? And they want to know when's that going to happen? When will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? They want to know when the temple will be torn down and it seems to me As we look at this and try to interpret it, it seems that they equate the destruction of the temple with Jesus coming in power and establishing his kingdom in its fullness. And thus, ending the current age and ushering in God's new administration. Now again, that's how I see this question at this point. Is it two or three different questions or is it one question? And the answer is yes. Okay, It's one big long question if you look at the punctuation. And there's two ands in there. When will these things be and what will be your, the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? I'm thinking, again, as I dig deeper into this and as I, as I read more, listen more, think more, pray more, I'm thinking they think all this is contained together. Okay? Because if, if there was something as catastrophic as the destruction of the temple... They're thinking, whoa, that's, that's a God-sized thing. Something major has to be happening. And again, remember what they're looking for all through all of Jesus' teaching, working, miracles, everything. They're expecting Him to establish the kingdom. And He has preached for three and a half years about the kingdom. The kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom. So when they hear the temple is going to be destroyed, they think, well, that's the end of the human religious system. And Jesus is going to set up His kingdom and we're going to do things right. And he's training us for that. He's equipping us to be a part of that. So I do think that it is one question that has three components, but it's one main thought. Okay? That's where I'm at. Again, you don't have to agree with me there. And smarter people than me don't agree with me there. And that's all right. We ain't mad at each other. And I'll listen to you and look at your charts if you want me to. And I'm going to go, okay, I just don't believe it. Okay? So... In their minds, it's all the same question. They're not asking him multiple questions. They're asking when these things, which they believe to be the end, the goal, will come about. The prophets had so many times talked about the day of the Lord. And that day of the Lord, 
when you look at the prophetic writings, was a time of judgment. It was a time of darkness, doom, and gloom. So when Jesus starts saying the temple's going to be destroyed, well, that just puts their minds in gear to start thinking about the day of the Lord, which will bring destruction, which will bring the end of all things, and Jesus establishing God's kingdom once for all. So to this point, Jesus has said that they should make sure that no one leads them astray. And this we're going to work quickly through what we've seen so far in Matthew 24. See to it, he says, first thing, see to it that no one leads you astray. For many will come in his name, claiming to be the Christ, leading many people astray. And Jesus said, there will be wars and rumors of wars, nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom, famines and earthquakes in various places. And all of that is just the beginning of the birth pains. If you'll remember what Bob read in 1 Thessalonians, talked about labor. Uh, Paul's using that language borrowed here from Jesus. But that's just the beginning, Jesus said, of the birth pains. And then Jesus said that the disciples would be put through tribulation and put to death and hated by all nations for his namesake, with many falling away and betraying and hating one another. And there will be false prophets and an increase in lawlessness, leading to the love of many growing cold. And there was a call to endurance. And then the promise that the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And then, I guess now, one, two, three weeks ago, in our last message, we looked at Jesus telling His men to look for the abomination of desolation as a sign to look for, when, and when they see it, that they should make haste to head for the mountains, because there will be great tribulation, worse than any before it, and any that will come after it. And then he reminded them that if anyone's saying that the Christ is here or there, don't listen to him, don't go to see. Because when Jesus comes, his coming will be like the lightning coming from the east and shining as far as the west. There will be no question about it. Was that Did Jesus come back? We're not sure. Did Jesus, is it maybe Jesus come? No, you're going to know. Okay, It's going to happen. And everybody's going to know is actually what he said. Um, I lost my place. Um, there. And when he and then he concluded in our last message with wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather, which is kind of a weird statement, right? And I said then that that statement about the vultures and the corpses tied into the return of Jesus as a time of judgment and darkness, kind of like the day of the Lord, right? Well, let's take it from there with this first word in our passage today, which is immediately. Okay, immediately. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, Jesus then says. Corpses, vultures, immediately after. So this is tied to that for sure. This, again, we're, we're three weeks separated from it because that was our last message. But Jesus says this in the next breath. So... We've been saying that we are approaching this text as Jesus answering their question with what will happen in times that his disciples would see with their physical eyes. And then those things telescope out and give an indication of what could or would happen much later in the future. But this word, immediately. Okay? Because if he's talking to them about their life and their times, then this word immediately would mean what? It would mean immediately. And what does immediately mean? This, then this. Nothing between it. Right? Now keep that in mind. Nothing between it. 
Right after this, immediately then that. So Jesus is saying immediately after the tribulation of those days. What days? The days that he referenced his disciples experiencing great tribulation such as never been nor ever will be again. Immediately after those days. Immediately here is defined as straightway, forthwith, without delay or hesitation, with no time intervening. But now let me just read verses 29 to 31 to see the whole context again of what will happen immediately after the tribulation of those days with corpses and vultures, okay? Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Okay, so let's kind of list this out. And I've got nine things here that we see in these three verses. And I meant to put those up here too, and I didn't do it. I'm sorry. I've had three weeks to prepare, and I'm as unprepared as I've ever been. Nine things that he says are going to happen immediately after the tribulation of those days, after the corpses and the vultures. The sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven. The powers of the heavens will be shaken. The sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. All the tribes of the earth will mourn. They, the tribes of the earth, will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. The Son of Man will send out His angels with a loud trumpet call. And, nine, the angels will gather His elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Now, if you're like me, and you're a good old southern West Virginia, central Appalachian guy, you grew up and you just knew... This was talking about when Jesus comes back, right? Like when, when the rapture, the end times, okay? And that does sound like what will happen at the end of all things, right? I mean, it makes sense. And Jesus is saying that all of this will happen immediately following the tribulation that arises after the abomination of desolation, which could be seen as the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in A.D. 70, right? We said the abomination of desolation was an abomination of the temple being destroyed, which makes the temple worship desolate. And he told those guys in front of him, when you see this happen, run to the hills. Get going. Don't don't dawdle. Don't dawdle, dawdle. Don't delay. Run. Go to the mountains. Run. Get out of Jerusalem because bad things are going to happen in Jerusalem. And bad things did happen in Jerusalem in AD 70, right? Over a million Jews were killed. And the temple was destroyed. But what about these nine things that I just read? Because Jesus just said immediately after these things, these nine things are going to happen. Did they? Be careful. <laughs> let, me, let me read the list again, because I think this is important. The sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven. The powers of the heavens will be shaken. The sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. All the tribes of the earth will mourn. The tribes of the earth will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. The Son of Man will send out His angels with a loud trumpet call. And nine, the angels will gather His elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. 
immediately after the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, did these nine things happen? I think we could say pretty simply, pretty easily, that the first five, say the first five things, could be interpreted figuratively instead of literally. And we could feel pretty good about that. The sun will be dark and the moon will not give its light. We'll talk about this in a minute. The stars will fall from heaven. The powers of the heavens will be shaken. The sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. That could be taken figuratively. And we could say that that happened immediately after the destruction of the temple. But, but man, those last four, six through nine, all the tribes of the earth will mourn. The tribes of the earth will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. The Son of Man will send out His angels with a loud trumpet call, and the angels will gather His elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Now, can we feel good about saying those things happened immediately after the destruction of the temple? I don't feel very good about it. So, was Jesus wrong? Okay, we start from the assumption that Jesus was not wrong. And that's important. I mean, it really is. Because there are people who say that Jesus was an illegitimate prophet because these things didn't happen immediately after the destruction of the temple. Okay? Now, we're going to talk a lot about biblical interpretation today. And let me tell you what. You start your interpretation from the home base that Jesus was not wrong. And that's super important. Did all the tribes of the earth mourn? Did they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory? Did Jesus send out His angels with a loud trumpet call? And did those angels gather Christ's elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other? It seems like those things are yet to come, right? Well, our preterist friends would say that those things did happen and are happening even as we speak. They would say, and if you're not familiar with the term preterist, They're saying that these things happened pre-us, basically. Before the end times, as the end times are happening. They would say that those things did happen and are happening even as we speak. They would say that God's judgment was shown in A.D. 70, as seen in Numbers 1-5 through of that list, and that triggered events in the plan of God that immediately started taking place with the mourning of the tribes, happening in a figurative sense, them seeing the signs of the inevitable coming of the Son of Man as the angels or messengers of Christ are sent out at the command of Christ to gather His elect from the four winds, which is happening today as God's messengers preach the gospel. And how are the elect gathered in? Through the preaching of the gospel. From one end of heaven to the other, from the east to the west, from the four corners. And that other, and that, so this stuff did start happening immediately after the destruction of Jerusalem, in a figurative sense. And if you interpret this literally, then immediately has to refer to some future event leading to literal fulfillments of all of these nine items on this list. Or there are people who say part of it's figurative, part of it's literal, and on and on and on. And it's really hard to say decisively. And I think in our next message, if we get to meet next week on verses 36 to 51, may give us some additional insight, and so might the parables of Matthew 25. So no scripture is self-contained, okay? It's in a context. We're going to talk a lot about context too. But 
I think we can start to get a better idea from looking at these last four verses in our passage today, particularly 32 to 34, but we'll read 32 to 35 right now. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Now, okay. Back in the introductory message to this chapter, I said there are very important details that need to be clearly seen in two words in particular. Age and generation. Now, we said before about age that it could refer to the end of the Jewish age or the end of all things, the end of the age. Age. Well, here in this four-verse passage, we need to look at the word, and here's our linchpin, generation. Jesus is saying that all of this is to be seen and watched for and that this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now again, this is pretty important for this whole chapter, not just these few verses that we're looking at today. So in these four verses, Jesus is saying that like a fig tree puts out leaves, when it does that, you know that summer is near. Fig trees would sprout their leaves right before summer. Okay, oh, fig leaves are out. It's almost summer. They didn't have wall calendars and handheld calendars. And I was about to say PDAs, which haven't been around for 30 years, but just in my head, that's what popped up. They didn't have those things. So they looked for the signs. Oh, fig leaves. Man, summer's almost here. Or, oh, no, summer's almost here. They probably hated the heat. So that's pretty simple. That's pretty clear. So also, Jesus says, when you see... When you see, guys, who are asking me this question, when you see all these things, all these things that we've seen today, all these things that we've looked at over the past weeks in Matthew 24, when you see these things, disciples, you know then that He is near. You know that the Son of Man, the returning King, Jesus, is near. At the very gates, He says. And then verse 34 has the hinge or the uh, linchpin that we're talking about. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now, when it comes to interpretation of this passage, I'll say it again. This is a big deal. Truly, Jesus says for emphasis, amen is the word. That means it's sure, it's set in stone without a doubt, and he wants them to notice that specifically. And when in doubt, listen, biblical interpretation, when in doubt, go to what is not in doubt to find your bearings. You ever been driving in the snow and you don't know where you're at? You're disoriented? If we get into the middle of this passage, it's very easy to get disoriented. So we go back to the things that are sure, To find our bearings. Okay? And Jesus is saying here, this is something you can set your bearings by. 
Find your bearings with this. So Jesus is making a sure, can't-be-changed statement, which is not and will not be in doubt. And in response to that, we have to be sure, we are clear and sure what is being said here. Truly, Jesus says to his 12 disciples who have asked him this question at the beginning of the chapter about when all these things will take place and of his coming, the end of the age. Again, seems like they equate it all together. Truly, Jesus says, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now, before we move into figuring this out for ourselves... Let's listen to this as if you're standing there that day hearing what Jesus said. You're one of the twelve. You're standing there that day and you're listening to Jesus answer your question. How would you hear what he just said? What would you think if he said what he just said and you heard him say it? Well, I can promise you. I can promise you that they wouldn't take this statement and think, oh, so he's going to come back in a couple thousand years or so. Because generation can mean a lot of things. I promise you they did not hear it that way. And I'm being a little cheeky to be sure. But I see this as vital in our understanding of this whole passage. They ask a question. He answers them tells them that this generation that they are a part of will not pass away until all these things take place. Now, I don't want to oversimplify this either, okay? Because that's a danger. But their hearing and understanding would be very easy to assess, right? They wouldn't have any questions what he was saying. They would expect that everything he told them would happen in their time, during their normal expected lives. And how we interpret this should depend on what kind of statement it is. And this is huge. What kind of statement it is. He's not telling a parable. Right? The fig tree thing is a word picture. That's not a parable. We'll get into the parables in chapter 25. So the fig tree thing is a word picture to help them be clear in what he's saying. And again, he'll tell parables following this, but we don't interpret this statement as part of a parable. We'll interpret this statement as Jesus answering a direct question. And that makes the interpretive work pretty easy, right? If I ask you what time will we get done today and you say around noon, I'm going to assume you mean we're going to be done around noon. And that's how we're interpreting Jesus answering their question, a direct question with a direct answer. So what does generation mean? Again, it can mean a lot of things. Fathered, birth, that which has been begotten, men of the same stock, a family, several ranks of natural descent, the successive members of a genealogy, a race of men very much like each other in endowments, pursuits, and character, a perverse race could be said that way of a generation, this wicked generation, the whole multitude of men living at the same time, an age, a space of, oh, say, what's a good round biblical number? 40 years? So it has a broad range of meanings. 
And that makes a lot of options possible depending on which definition we use. And that's exactly what's happened as people are interpreting this passage. And that leads to the question, how do we determine which of these definitions to use? Do we pick one and then interpret the passage in light of that? Or do you look at the whole passage and then figure out which definition to use from there? Well, as always, always... In discussing Bible study and biblical interpretation, what's the main rule? Context rules. The context that the statement or word is found in determines what that statement or word means. A text without a context is a pretext. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me is taken out of context so often we don't know what it means anymore. We think we can jump off the building and not get hurt because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But Paul's full statement is, I've learned how to get by with a lot or a little. I've learned how to be disregarded or held in high regard. I've learned the secret. He says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. No matter what situation I'm in, God has me there and God's going to strengthen me so I can do it. Context rules. In the direct context of the question the disciples ask, which is primarily about the destruction of the temple and the things that will follow, when did the destruction of the temple happen? It happened in A.D. 70. Get this, less than 40 years after Jesus spoke these words. In that generation. Jesus was not saying to them, and I can say this and stand on this, thing that I'm standing on quite solidly. He was not saying to them that the temple would be destroyed in a couple of millennia from then. He was saying it would happen in their lifetime. And guess what? Jesus was right. Shocker. And for Jesus to say that all these things would happen in that generation means what? It means that they did. But what about verses 29 to 31? Let's look at those again. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. That list of nine things that we talked about. Now, here again, the issue of literal or figurative language is important. Now listen. The Jewish audience that Matthew was writing to predominantly to prove that Jesus was the king, which we've said over and over and over again as we went through Matthew, a predominantly Jewish audience, they would recognize this language about a darkened sun, the moon not giving its light, and stars falling from the sky. It's very familiar to them. And it always depicts the judgment of God. Always. Commentator John Oakes says this about this language, saying it's, quote, 
a quote from apocalyptic language in Isaiah 13.10 and Isaiah 34.4. We should not look for any sort of literal fulfillment. This is not about an asteroid or a comet or a meteorite. Jesus is talking here about the events of the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70 in apocalyptic terms which his Jewish hearers would definitely understand. They would not have taken the comment about the sun, the moon, and the objects falling from the sky literally. They would have assumed that this is the day of the Lord when God comes in judgment, which is exactly what happened when Jerusalem was destroyed. End of quote. You're going, I don't know. I don't know how you feel about this. But I'm going to tell you the truth. I kind of want to shout about it. It's got me plum excited. You're like, you don't look excited. I'm containing myself. It gets me excited because it makes so much sense. And it makes this passage so good and so powerful. I don't have to try to decipher the nooks and the crannies and try to cram in my hopes or fears about the end times. And yes, I do believe it may mirror some things that happen in the end times that we're yet to see. I believe that. I still think the telescopically thing is valid. And it also helps me to know how to interpret the rest of these things as well. So verses 30 and 31 don't require a definite this happens exactly like it's being said interpretation, but we can easily fit it in with what happened in the judgment of A.D. 70. The sign of the Son of Man, the coming on clouds of heaven with power and glory, Him sending out His angels with a loud trumpet call, gathering His elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other, can very easily, without any kind of twisting or contortion, these things can very easily fit into God's activity in that time, in that generation, through God's activity and calling, forming, and sending out the church in that time, in that generation, which happened literally fulfilling the figurative language prophecies. Everything that we see at the end of the Gospels and through the book of Acts easily fit into these prophecies. If we aren't looking for a literal, has to happen just like the words say in our language and are defined by our dictionaries. So we're interpreting the figurative prophecies based on the literal usage of the word generation. And it works perfectly. You're like, I don't see it. I don't get it. I get it. Again, I've been wrestling with this passage for more than three weeks. But it really, when you take this into consideration, now think about the things that are about to take place in Jesus' day right after he says these things. It's Wednesday of the last week of his life. In two days, they're going to kill God in the flesh. Literally, the sun is going to be darkened for a few hours that day. Remember that? They're going to take Jesus down from the cross. They're going to bury Him. He's going to rise in great power in three days after that. He's going to manifest Himself as alive over a period of 40 days to over 500 people. And then He is going to ascend into the sky. And then 40 days after that, the Spirit's going to fall and form the church. These are cataclysmic things. These are age-changing things. And then, 30 plus years after he says all this, this temple is going to get destroyed and God's going to pour his judgment out upon the Jewish people. And all those things happen as the church is forming and being sent to the four winds to gather the elect from east and west and from the four winds of heaven. And I'll tell you what, 
I didn't believe this until about a month ago. I'm saying you got to do a lot of gymnastics to fit it in, and, and I don't think you do. I think it works perfectly to Jesus' figurative end of times apocalyptic language. Now, is there still going to be an end of times? Absolutely. Is it going to look like this? I think it very well could. I don't think it has to, mind you. Again, I don't think your chart necessarily makes all that much sense. You may be right. But I don't need your chart to make sense of this passage is what I'm saying. Nothing against your chart. I tell you what, I'll say this for people who are in the dispensational mindset. They have done their homework. And they are, I mentioned it to Will before the, the service, they have done their homework and they're pulling from Daniel and Ezekiel and Revelation and Matthew 24 and some weird obscure verse in Amos somewhere that means, and, and man, it's there. And, and, and Daniel 70 weeks and how that figures into Jesus' marching into the temple and how many days it was. They've done their homework. Are they wrong? I'm not saying they're wrong necessarily. I'm saying I just don't need all that to interpret this passage. That's what I'm saying. And I'm not saying you don't have to agree with me, but man, it has freed me because I'm going, man, I don't really see how this fits into that. And it can't be this and it can't be that. I'm going, no, it really, it, 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 it can be. It works perfectly. It's almost like a perfect God-man spoke these words and a perfect Holy Spirit inspired a human being to write them down perfectly. Now, I surely will affirm again that what happened in their time very well may, and I would say probably will, see similar manifestations in the future sometime. Will the end of all things look like what the disciples saw in Jerusalem? I would say so. And here's the deal. God is so much bigger and smarter and more powerful than us. He can surely give us crumbs to follow along the way, leading up to the end of the age and Jesus' physical return to earth as king. And He surely wants us to know some things. But again, surely He does not want us to know everything. And that's my problem with those who say it has to be this way or it has to follow this pattern or it has to fit in my chart. Anybody ever seen this verse before? The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of His law, of this law. Deuteronomy 29, 29. God has things that we will never know about. Amen. And that's okay. Because the things that we do have are given so that we might know them and teach our children and obey His law. Let me ask you this question. Does any of this determine how you fulfill God's law or not? This passage does not. And so there can be some secret things in here that we don't know. And I'm okay with that. I hope you are too. Because next week we're going to jump into a passage. Listen, Jesus is going to say, oh, as far as me coming back, I don't know. Jesus is going to say that next week if we get to meet, Lord willing. If, if we don't get to read it. He says, I don't know. Who are we to say we do when Jesus says he doesn't? The secret things belong to the Lord our God. There are secret things that belong to God alone. But I do want to look at one more verse from today. 
Matthew 24, 35. Heaven and earth will pass away, Jesus says, but my words will not pass away. We use this verse in a lot of different contexts to show the veracity of God's word, and that's right. But again, look at the context here. Jesus is saying that what he's saying in this chapter is sure. It's right. It's set. And it will stand the test of time. So you folks saying Jesus' words didn't hold up, you're wrong. Heaven and earth will pass away. They'll both be destroyed and then they're going to be remade, praise God. But what Jesus is saying here at this time about these things will not ever pass away. It will happen. Every single bit of it. And it's an emphatic addition to the truly I say to you from earlier. And it's to the nth degree. Everything, heaven, earth, everything will pass away, perish. But these words that Jesus is speaking to his 12 men about these events in their generation will not pass away. They will not perish. They will not end. And there never will be a time when they are not. Just a quick note too. The word for words here is logos, which is something we looked at near Christmas and Advent. It's loaded with implications and nuance. The words of Jesus are the words of God. The words of the capital W word, full of grace and truth and life, which is what we looked at at Advent. And they will never pass away. All being said, Jesus is adding a sure end to the prophecies and predictions that he's giving to his men in answering their question. They're going to happen as sure as he is the word. Now again, I do not pretend to have all the answers to all the questions about this passage. But I'm going to find my bearings around the things that Jesus says truly Surely, this is not going to pass away ever. It's a good place to orient ourselves for the passage. And that's the end of our passage today, which brings us to application. Three A's today. Answers, angels, and arrival. Answers, angels, and arrival. First one is answers. And this has to do with, again... Biblical interpretation. And we, we already had this, I think, in our last message. There was a, uh, an application point on interpretation. But this gets a little bit more nuts and bolts than that one did, okay? We said in that message that interpreting the Bible is every believer's work. And that it is a tall order taking hard work. Now, this passage today gives us some really good examples of how to handle this hard work. Okay, and it revolves around one, two, three, four, four tools to use in your interpretation. And the first one is what I said before, context. Always interpret your passage in light of its immediate context. All the Bible's tied together. The Bible is a story of God revealing himself and sending Jesus to pay the penalty for our sins so that he would get glory forever through his resurrected, regenerated people. That's the whole big story of the Bible. And different books, different chapters, different paragraphs all tie into that message. Some texts are in part of a particular context that we've got to decipher if we're going to figure out what the passage means. 
Don't ever start interpreting before you establish the context. I don't have a chapter and verse for that. I don't need one. Establish the context. The second thing is literary type. We interpret Psalms different than we interpret the account of Abraham sacrificing Isaac. Why? Because they're different types of language. Psalms are songs or hymns. They're poetry. And we interpret poetry different than we interpret historical accounts or narratives. Today, we are looking at a narrative. We are looking at Jesus answering questions from the disciples. Now, is there hidden things in it? Sure. He's God in the flesh and He says things we don't understand. But we're not interpreting today like a poem. Third tool, word studies. Dig into certain words and establish their meaning by the context and by the literary type that you're using. We have... Tools after tools after tools after tools on these things here. I used to sit with 12, 15 books laying on the floor, going back and forth from them, spending hours doing research to find out what one word meant. Now I can pull it up. Blink, blink means this, 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 this. It's found here, 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 and here. Strong defines it as this, and it's defined in the context as this. I can do it in 30 seconds now. And so can you. Word studies are important. How many times have you heard me say this word means this in the original language standing up here? A lot. Because it matters. And today we looked at that word generation and what that word generation means. It means a lot to our passage, the whole passage. And then that, the fourth thing, we said context, literary type, word studies. Figuring out if something is literal or figurative. Okay? That's hard. That's probably the hardest thing out of all those things. What we saw today in this narrative account of Jesus answering their direct question, he used some apocalyptic language that would be taken by them as figurative. Let me give you an example because somebody who was there that day thought about this. Acts chapter 2. Peter's giving his sermon, his initial sermon there, right after Pentecost, well, during Pentecost, after the Spirit fell on the church. Peter's first sermon. Watch this. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose. Again, they're speaking in tongues. People are hearing them speak in their own language because the Spirit fell on them, tongues of fire on them. Since it's only the third hour of the day. We ain't had time to get drunk yet, is what Peter just said there. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Now watch this. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. Watch this. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now let me ask you a question. Were these people seeing the sun turn to darkness? Were they seeing the moon as blood? Were they seeing wonders in the heavens, blood and fire and vapor and smoke? No. But Peter says this is what Joel was talking about. What you're seeing right now is what Joel was talking about. 
And they didn't say, no, nah, nah, Peter, there's no blood, there's no smoke. They didn't say that. Why? Because they knew exactly what he was saying. He was saying, this that you see is that that Joel talked about. It's apocalyptic language. Just like what Jesus was using today in today's passage. And they had no problems accepting it from poor uneducated fisherman Peter. Because it was common vernacular to them. There at Pentecost there was no blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun wasn't dark. The moon wasn't blood. But God was working. And the Hebrew poetry and imagery was in full swing. So that's how Peter interpreted those writings. Peter, I might add, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit who had just filled him, brought to him, to, my, to his mind, the passage in Joel. And he said, this is that. And you know what? It didn't match up perfectly exactly in our literal minds. But it did match up exactly in a figurative apocalyptic language way. Peter said, this is that. And they were like, whoa, what do we got to do to be saved? So this, how Peter interpreted these writings, might be a good example for us to follow in interpreting what Jesus said today too. So that was answers. The hard work of biblical interpretation and doing it in a lot of different ways. Okay, And that's very important. It's a sort of linchpin in our Bible study plan. Second application point is angels. Now watch this. Jesus said that he would send his angels, his messengers. Angels means messengers, right? And that those angels would gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Has Jesus done that? You bet he has. How is he doing it today? He's doing it through us. Church, we are his messengers. Now get a hold of that. We are Christ's messengers. And he's using us to gather the elect from the four corners of the earth. From the four winds. Oh. What We, as the church, are a linchpin, the linchpin, in His plans on earth today. He's not going to do it apart from us. He's not going to do it apart from you. How will they hear without a preacher? Who is that? That's us. We literally are now, what? The body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, now you, plural you, are the body of Christ. And individual members of it. Listen, until Christ returns, until He comes again, He's coming through us. He comes through us until He comes again. 1 Peter I'm sorry, 1 Timothy 1, 14 and 15. And the grace of our Lord overflowed with me, with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world. That's the wrong passage. Sorry. How did that happen? The, that's right. But this, this, Let me read it. I hope to come to you soon, Paul says. 
But I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. The church is the linchpin in God's plans in our present day. Watch this. I've used this a hundred times. I'm going to use it 101 now. To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, Paul says in Ephesians 3, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through Him, through our faith in Him. Look back at this. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. God's using you, church. God is using me, church, to take His message. We are His messengers. We are His angels. And we are to gather His elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Again, He comes through us until He comes again. And He will not come in any other way than through us until He comes back physically, bodily. Until then, we are His body. Answers, angels, and finally arrival. Listen. After all these things, you're going to see these signs. All this is going to happen in this generation 2,000 years ago. And what did Jesus say then? When you see these things, know that He is near at the very gates. Y'all, He was near 2,000 years ago. He was at the very gates 2,000 years ago. How much nearer is he now? This is my wholehearted eschatological summation. There's nothing that has to happen for Jesus to come back now. There's no pretense or no thing that has to happen before Jesus can come back. All he has to hear is the Father say, go. I'm not looking for signs I'm not looking for a chart to have all the spaces filled in. And again, I'll lay off the chart, guys. I'm sorry. I'm looking for Jesus and His arrival, which is imminent. And all this sets up the move to next time's passage, next week's passage if we meet, when we'll finish the chapter, Lord willing. But watch this, just finishing. And behold, Jesus says, I'm coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. That's 22.7 in Revelation 22.12. Behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. 22.20. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. That is the battle cry of the church today. Come. Come now. Please. You said, but but all the lost people. Hey, listen, he's gathering his elect from the four winds. And until he does come, we're going to do the work. And he's going to use us as his angels to bring his message to the people as we interpret the scriptures correctly and bring it out there. But our cry is not, Jesus, wait. Our cry is, Jesus, come. Come, Lord Jesus. 1 Thessalonians, we'll be done. 
But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, those who have died, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, anybody believe that? Even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep, those who have died. For this we we declare to you by a word from the Lord. That we who are alive, think about it church, who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. You're like, there's the trumpet, remember? Stay with me. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Don't fight about it. Don't wrangle over words about it. Don't tell somebody they're wrong and you're going to disfellowship with them because you don't agree about it. Jesus is coming back and we say, come Lord Jesus. And there's a verified word of the Lord that says he's going to descend. He's going to raise the dead. We're going to meet those who are left alive. We're going to meet those dead people who are not dead anymore in the air. And we're going to always be with Jesus. These are encouraging words. These are not divisive words. Therefore, Encourage one another with these words. And we say, come, come Lord Jesus. And he will. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us a perfect account of everything that we need to know pertaining to life and godliness. Everything. And we praise you that there are secret things that belong to you and to you alone. God, may we take the things that are revealed... And may we interpret them accurately by the power of your Holy Spirit in cooperation with your church, with your people. May we know that we are your messengers, your angels that you're sending out with those interpretations, with those good encouraging strong words about who Jesus is. And God, may our rallying cry as we cry out to the lost be like, Jesus is returning soon. Therefore, repent and believe the gospel. God, I thank you for this time. And I ask that you would be honored and glorified as we go out and share this message with others as much as we can, as much as we agree or understand it. And that's a tall order, God. Thank you for your Holy Spirit who makes us able to do these things. Carry us home safe, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction? Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, and he will. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now and forever. And all God's people said, Amen. Have a great day. If you want to hang out and talk, it's a little cold out there, but I think you're pretty tough. You can handle it. We'll love you better out there.